From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in Warming, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Arthur Croy, I too make nice games. This week, we're back to the drawing board for another nice thinking, where one of your nice hosts or a nice guest brings an idea to the clubhouse to workshop on air. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Okay, important format update, people. Yes. We've done a couple of these nice thinkings. Right, in fact. Yeah. I've done one or two. Yeah. Steven. One or two. Ellen. I don't remember. At least two. At least. Probably. <laughs> but we have our first uh, nice thinking guest. Uh, so let's yeah. welcome him. Uh, Adam, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Do, 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 do. Hello, everyone. How are we doing? It is warm over here in the UK today. <laughs> I think we just established it's about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 36 degrees yes. Celsius. Yeah, it's too warm. Yeah, so you're getting right into it, but, but I do have to make sure that we get your full name on air. And here's the thing. I don't know how oh, to pronounce your last name. And I didn't ask you ahead of time. <laughs> I just looked That's at it like, right. that looks uh, pretty British. <laughs> uh, so hello, everyone. My name is Adam Clues Boyne. Uh, I am the co-founder of Indie Studio Beta Jester here in the UK. Uh, I'm also the co-founder and one of the podcast hosts on Game Dev London um, that you may have heard on a previous mentioned on a previous episode. Um, yes. Sure um, that at some point as well. You contacted us out of the blue a while ago and said, hey, we like your nice games jam format. Can we steal it? And I think immediately we were like, yes, please. Uh-huh. Uh, and you had a couple, a pair of really great episodes uh, that we uh, incorporated back into the show because we played the games you made. And man, that was, it was so, I'd say like, thank you for like taking our concept and like doing more with it. I think that was really, we re- really found a lot of satisfaction in seeing that and seeing it sort of travel out of the clubhouse and be successful elsewhere. Um, but also the two games you guys made were really, was really yeah, fun. Right? It was really fun. Yeah, they were good. Yeah, I, I'll have to admit, and I'll have to add this to the, the meta as well, is that, uh, so, Kavada Kavada and also listener to all of Nice Games Club's episodes over the last sort of two, three years. I started from the beginning and then went all the way through and just about caught up when I got to my episode, which I was like, yes, good time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, no, because, because of that, which has been, it's been a fantastic journey. Obviously, I saw the the Nice Games Jam evolve from you know, the early ones and, diff- and just how it changed and stuff. And mm-hmm. going into uh, Global Game Jam, I was like, I mean, this is just such a good format. Like, what, what happens if we bring it over our side and try it ourselves? Can we make a game in an hour? Um, and then we made two. We had two different teams. And yeah. honestly, one of the most fascinating things was listening to, to you three try and play it and get a number of the rules wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I have never realized the detail I need to put into writing rules down. And I heard people on just I was there going, no, that's that's not what it's for. Don't do that. (laughs) In fairness, we did have to convert back to Fahrenheit when we read the rules. Right, right, yeah. So yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Completely changes everything. I think every, even every, as we were playing, we were like, "Are we getting this right?" And we're like, "Oh, if if we're not, then it's a lesson to the developer." <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a lesson learned. It was a lesson <laughs> absolutely learned. Yeah, but oh, again, it was hilarious. fascinating. It was fascinating to see that kind of angle because it's a it's a it's a really good lesson on um, on user experience, and it's about how mm. you you know even in that really short form, you would think you wouldn't have to deal with that, but actually, he, you very much have to mm. talk about how oh, if sure. it's not built into the game then you have to explain it very clearly. And if you don't, people will get the wrong idea. And it's mm-hmm. as much a lesson there as it's anywhere else. And it's really difficult because you're whipping up this game together in an hour and you're not taking great notes. And yes, you can go back and listen to the recording, but sometimes you go back and you're like, wait, I said what? And then we did what with it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, I guess I'm going to write it down like this. <laughs> yeah. 
It's useful when we edit our nice games jam episodes because we always edit a, like a week or two after we record, and that's useful for us because in the re- it, it's kind of fresh, so we don't like take any of our assumptions on the recording. And for nice games jam, it's especially so when we're editing those because it's mm-hmm. like we lose all the pr- presumption. We look at our notes and it's like, okay, this doesn't explain the game we played, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and then you you listen back and you're like, okay, now I sort of remember, and it's like a weird like yep. sort of uh, forensic operation, mm-hmm. uh, even mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you yourself are the one who came up with the rules and wrote them down. Yep, you've <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you're taking yourself out out of yourself for that just that one hour, and you come back and you're like, wait, why did I? What was I? What was the point? Oh, I see. Yeah, this yeah. is it's because I had it lying on my desk. Now I understand. That's <laughs> So you mentioned it right at the top. Uh, it hot. Oh yeah. Um, it's hot here in Minneapolis, yeah. but like I think we have no right to complain yeah. <laughs> because it is. Uh, <laughs> it is epically, you know, uh, world's first uh, heat wave uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. How are you holding mm-hmm. up? Uh, I am okay. Uh, yeah, I got I got a little bit away with it in that I uh, was fortunate to to. to I so the studio I run Bay Jester, we were like, um, we we need aircon, please. Oh god. Um so we 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 managed to source that um the other week. So I'm okay, but I have friends up and down the country, especially in London where it's a, a 41, 42 degrees, hundred was it hundred and five hundred and ten like degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah. Fahrenheit. Yeah, and they're not it's having a great out. time. It's a lot of batting down the hatches, windows closed, don't even think about opening the door. Um, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. It's like Arizona temperature. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have the framework with which to deal with. Exactly. It. Right. Like yeah. there, there was extreme cold in Texas last year mm-hmm. and they couldn't handle it because they're not used to that. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, they're having similar problems now in the summer, even though it's Texas. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we do have in the United States is we have air conditioning everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In homes and businesses. And I r- just read recently that's extremely rare in the UK. It's mostly yeah. uh, businesses only uh, will have them and very mm-hmm. rare to have them in homes. That, I mean, yeah, it's just, that is such an unusual, like it feels so, of all the things that feel foreign about foreign places to me that one actually seems yeah. the most unusual to me because <laughs> yeah. you're just so used to that being a feature of the architecture you live in mm-hmm. uh but mm-hmm. up to, i mean it just never made sense to invest in all that um until now and probably going forward yeah yeah no it's just not really been i think part of the architecture um because you know our temperatures have never really got too high or too low to really require it what's been sort of middling but it's in my head it's one of the things when i when i've been out to america it's exactly that is that you go into every building and it's just a cool level every single time it's like oh it's quite gentle and nice whereas here it, it, you, you know you, you get on a train and you're being cooked alive you get off the train and torrential rain happens you just go yeah that, that's our weather that seems about right okay <laughs> so when like baking directions or something says room temperature does that just fluctuate depending on oh, <laughs> the I, room? wildly depending where you are in the country you know if huh. you make it in scotland it's going to just be flat if you make it down sort of on the south it's just going to rise to about three times the height like that's wow. just that's just part of our, our cuisine you know that's just how <laughs> <we're doing. laughs> Well, you sort of bring up like the the phrase "room temperature" yeah. is part of our culture. Yeah. In a way, do you even use that term in the UK? Good question. Yeah, we we do. I mean, it's sort of it's it's weirdly to think about that we don't really we use it, but I've never actually thought about. But what does it mean? <laughs> what, does it mean the, what does it mean in this country? It doesn't actually mean anything. I think it is. You know, it's sort of that kind of. It's okay. You could step out. I think if you could walk around and it's just about room temperature. Um, mm. But yeah, we don't use. It's not often used i think it's more you know we just say like the weather's yeah it's all right that's about, that's about <laughs> as detailed as we get right the carry on right yeah <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay well we've delayed long enough yeah. um why don't you go ahead and present your concept 
for your nice thinking and maybe let us and maybe tell us where you want to start uh, the brainstorming. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start this back a little bit, uh, going back about a year and a half, which is going back a little way, uh, back in sort of 2020, uh, mid pandemic. I just uh, was sort of struggling to remember things and not uh, in a great place for time retaining information, but in a way that I'd never really recognized before in my life. And that was quite worrying, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and between, and I talked to my, at the time, fiance about it, and I talked to my friends about it. And one of my friends said, oh, I am uh, investigating and seeking a diagnosis for ADHD and it sounds like something that could be relevant to you and I was like oh, it could be maybe and then we shared a lot of memes of each other mm-hmm. um, of, which my, of which my favorite one is one that says uh, either these memes need to stop being so relatable or I need to see a doctor um, <laughs> which kind of summed it up really and I was yeah. like oh hang on a minute um, and so I ended up in, over here in the, in the UK going and, and speaking to uh, my local uh, GP as we call them um and they were like they were like just do this very simple test it was sort of it's a marker which i did and it was like yes you so you you kind of hit like 95 percent out of 100 percent for for possible markers mm. uh so you probably want to go speak <laughs> we'll put you on this is on to speak to someone which i was like okay um and through a, a whole kind of process which I'll, which I'll talk about later on uh ended up with a diagnosis of of ADHD um which for me was ADHD combined which basically means I can be a bit hyperactive can be a bit inattentive um it, it's a mix of the two and when that happened i was like well you know it was wonderful to to have it, to know what it was and to understand and i was like right and now to return to the games industry and find all the support that's uh, there and there wasn't really a lot mm-hmm. um which which was a bit of a a shock to me um, mostly because a lot of my friends who would also have it also are from the games industry. And there's been a wave over here, certainly of people being diagnosed in, in the games industry with ADHD. Um, and recent, uh, we have a, a census over here run by kind of the, the top level body for the UK games industry. And it turned back and this is generally accepted as an underestimate. It was accept- it was accepted that it's about one in 10, hmm. um, which, uh, which for proportion is the same number of people who said they were an artist 2d or 3d. Um, which oh. is just a wild proportion. Yeah. And so, yeah, so lacking that kind of resource or knowledge or anything like that, I kind of was like, well, then I'm going to do something about it. Like, it's time to bring it back. And where I wanted to start in particular was, and this is where I wanted to come into my thinking, is like, how do we, and this is not just for ADHD people, it's neurodiversity in general, and, and gen- people in general, how do we help kind of, set up whether it's our businesses our spaces our communities etc to be mindful of these people and support them kind of coming into the industry being in the industry um and also you know games across the board it's kind of as a space it it has the capacity to really draw in people from a neurodiverse background Mm -hmm. and i want to make sure that we're kind of keeping we, we are preparing for that um and that's kind of where i wanted to go so it's quite a broad spectrum unintended broad spectrum kind of topic on um looking into into adhd neurodiversity in the games industry and how we can kind of make sure even at the base level we're keeping keeping it in mind and and supporting people essentially it's it's interesting because it's like it feels as you described it it feels like oh okay you kind of know where to go you got you got like you have a goal in mind 
But then the, yeah. there's the actual, like, what do you, like, logistically build to make that happen? I mean, that's your challenge, I think. So the first question is, is what, where are you now? Where, what have you got so far? Because um, I know you've started a little bit uh, getting this on its feet, right? Yeah, so I um, started, I sort of went, the, first, the starting point for me is always is the, ha, a point of reference. There's got to be somewhere that kind of signifies whether it's the information, whether it's uh, a point of uh, connecting with people or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd come up with a, a name and, an, and, and a very loose logo to sort of be this point of reference. But at the minute, exactly what defines that is very much kind of up in the air. Um, you know, we've had, I've had a thought about, is it a, a, a resource bank? And it's just kind of just having the information available. Um, and I've connected with uh, two other people in the industry um, on this side about this, trying to figure this out. Is it a community space somewhere people can go? Is it just being at events? And more so than that is at what, you know, what point is enough or not enough? You know, do I need, do, do I need to be more proactive in kind of talking to businesses and event spaces? Do we need to have our own events? Is that more important? Um, I managed to run. So we just had um, kind of the biggest uh, uh, co- conference in the UK for uh, the games industry as, from a trade perspective. So it's basically it's just for people in the game industry called Develop, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. which I, I ran a meetup for people with ADHD in the games industry just to see if people would turn up. Um, and we had about 30 people turn wow. up to just be and this was kind of the first ever event of its kind there really hadn't been an event for people with ADHD specifically huh. um and yet we had people who had been diagnosed for five years ten years people who were self-diagnosed people who were you know seniors in big companies people who were brand new all of which were incredibly appreciative of there just being a space for them to, to be and to meet other people yeah. like that um and again, it, all that does is kind of reinvigorate one, the fact that we need these kind of things, but also two, kind of why why hasn't it happened before? Like, why is this happening? Why, why it's take it's taken someone to come along and kickstart it, but you you know you kind of you kind of like this is a space that should have existed. But regardless of that, I I want to figure out exactly how to help these people as best as possible um, across the board because if we can create a better space a more welcoming space a more open space and help the people you know people be themselves and that can only lead to good things mm-hmm. yeah um so i mean one thing you i mean with with respect to like meetups and such i think that meetups can be powerful because you can see other people you know in in locations that you are uh, who who uh are dealing with the same things that you're dealing with and i think that's mm-hmm. very powerful but um i mean even with virtual events that's still kind of limiting because you have to find the event and yeah uh and and I, sometimes i don't know everybody's schedules are different and if you schedule an event at eight o'clock central time that might be uh two o'clock in the morning for someone else um so Very true. it's um so i think that events can't became powerful and i think that that is valuable to have um but my immediate thought is thinking about like a set of guidelines or something um for studios to help support folks with Mm. Uh, neurodivergent folks or uh, people with ADHD. Um, That is my immediate thought, but I don't know how other people are feeling about that. Yeah, I think that ties into what I think, um, like you're saying, like you don't know what it is will be enough to make it have an impact. And I think, Stephen, you're getting into the advocacy part. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's fine to 
organize and 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 have events and 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 support but then you you want to have influence outside of the of that space you've made for yourself yes and that's where that mm-hmm. comes in mm-hmm. yeah um so it's a matter of yes we want we want uh, studios to take note of this but what do we actually want them to do right and so coming up with those mm-hmm. those sort of standards um is pretty difficult like about like um uh like policies but also like communication strategies mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that's true there's, there's just a ton of there's a ton that needs to be done uh, in what you've described, and <laughs> you can't do it all at once, and you especially can't do it all right out the gate, right? Yeah. So the first mm-hmm, thing I feel mm-hmm. like I think the place to start is how are you going to narrow your vision to the thing that you're going to start with, right? So I guess the yeah. you know the first thing the first thing that I, like if I were trying to start trying to solve a really big problem or at least make a dent in it is try to just listen to what the challenges are. Yeah. So my question for you just to, to kind of start that in a little, little bitty way is when you were starting to re- reach out for resources in the industry, what resources were you hoping to find? You know, like what what questions were you asking that you then got nothing back? That's a very good point. Um, so when I started. Um, I kind of I, I started by being very scattergun. I wonder why, um, and just sort of <laughs> looking for uh, anything that kind of linked up. And the thing that kind of not maybe shocked is is from too strong word. Surprised me certainly was that most things in the UK games industry have either a charity dedicated to them specifically, or certainly have something that represents them across the board. And from the starting point. Uh, there was one charity that kind of mentioned it within their remit, but along with another sort of 30, 40 things, because they were trying to capture a lot of things around mental health and stuff, which is absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. But there was no one, ded- nothing dedicated to it. And I, I reached out to uh, somebody who kind of represents, uh, does a lot of work in kind of diversity and inclusion in the UK games industry. And they said, yeah, like it's they've been looking as well to try and figure out, and they're the one in charge, and they've been trying to figure out where where is the people, where are the resources? And it's kind of been that. It's kind of been the fact that there's been nothing has been a surprise. So a lot of my re- my knowledge and information came from my own research, um, came from studying things. And, and uh, to be honest, one of my major sources of it in the games industry, ironically, is a, another American podcast, which is a, a game development studio in uh, St. Louis. And I'm going to forget the country. Uh, country? What am I on about? State. There we go. Um, <laughs> country. Country's going back a little bit. Missouri, um, but, uh, Missouri. The uh, there's a team called uh, the um, Butterscotch Shenanigans mm-hmm. um, oh, who made mm-hmm. the games. I've met them. Who made the game? I have. I have. I've digitally met them, but I've not <laughs> met them in person yet. But that's cool. Um, but they did. A, they over the again. There's another one I went back to to the beginning of this all the way through. They go through a period where the three brothers, one after another, realize they have ADHD and get diagnosed and and could talk about it and. It was fascinating to listen to that as I was kind of going through my own process and kind of go, oh, this is what this means. This is how it's affected them mm-hmm. and how they changed their studio to manage and how their studio is set up to manage that. And that definitely was a, it was a good starting point. Um, but certainly it's kind of the research information is sporadic at best. It's kind of there's little bits. Of, there's an article here, a post over there, a podcast here, but not a huge amount in any kind of go-to place there's nowhere that i could say oh if you're looking for information about adhd in the games development and games development and games industry go here and i think that's probably where i where i'd wanted to start hmm. but couldn't find yeah kind of like a locus a, a locus of information that's a good place to start when it becomes relevant yeah, to... yeah exactly yeah okay 
Hmm. I think one of the one of the interesting things for me as well, just on top of that, which is is, is to your point on um, uh, guidelines as well, um, Stephen, is is that um, I, I it's definitely something that I want to do and kind of like be like, oh, this is how we work it. But one of the first things that I found, especially with the games industry and, and people in general, but particularly the, but the games industry as well, is that a lot of people have a very misconstrued image about what ADHD is. Um, and a lot of people, you know, if you say, what is ADHD, generally their image is kind of a small boy who can't sit still. And that's kind of it full stop. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just so, and that causes problems in so many ways. Um, because so for example, when I was, um, 13, um, we met a family, my my sister's best friend, uh, at the time we met her family and stuff, her, uh, the, the son of that family, a guy called Isaac, who's fantastic is, uh, ADHD, but a very hyperactive. He's just pinging off the wall all the time, boundless energy. Mm. Um, and my mom talked to his mom and was like, Oh, how did you know that he had? Uh, ADHD and she said oh well he did this and he did that and you know I turned around and he was gone and he wouldn't come back and my mom kind of recognized was like oh but but Adam does that as well but at the time it was just like oh he does that but it doesn't seem to be affecting him so we'll leave it mm-hmm. which is fine um, but it's this, this idea that and this comes up all over the place unless it's disrupting your life actively at that moment unless it's doing something that it's not worth pursuing or that it's not you know it's just unless it's a major catastrophe that's literally affecting you like clearly affecting you then it's not a problem and that not only is that bad for for people in general it's particularly bad for for women being diagnosed it is like the numbers are are so poor on on women being diagnosed and that is a massive problem because obviously you know it, it affects kind of how you perceive the world and how you interact with the world and until somebody comes along and goes oh hey this is what adhd is and it's correct people could not know for 20 30 40 years Mm -hmm. it's interesting you talk about like that discovering it is a process that takes a lot of things to line up right like we described like how it's diagnosed in children a lot of that it, it comes from the the energy of of you know the guardian who uh can identify those signs and then recognize that there's something worth doing about it, and I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that because it's it like it is seen as some as something that is that is, that is that kids have, and so when you're an mm-hmm. adult, you don't look for it yourself. Um, so I think a lot of those guidelines would have to be about like recognize just education about what yeah. it even is. But I think the tricky part is um, like how do you pre- you also have to present that in a way that is digestible, right? Because it's mm-hmm, not just mm-hmm. a storehouse of information you're trying to create. You actually do want to uh, have something that is, you know, the user experience of it all. Yeah. And some of that yeah. has to come from, I assume, um, uh, medical experts. And, and so mm-hmm. have you th- thought about having, uh, like, seeking out advisors to help craft these things? Because, you know, we aren't always th- the experts on our, of our own experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. The, I'm fortunate that um, here in the UK we have kind of, and I mentioned at the beginning, we have this kind of baseline test which I think is called off the top of my head, I think it's called DSM-5, which is a wonderfully developed name that clearly tells you what it is straight off the bat. <laughs> um, but um, it's basically kind of, um, I think off the top of my head, it's five um, initial questions and then 13 addition, and then thirteen additional questions, which is meant to be a, 
a prediction of how likely it is you have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something, it works something to the effect of if you answer, oh, it's uh, six questions and 12 questions. I remember to do the others. Mm-hmm. If you answer four of the six initial questions uh, in a certain way, um, you are, it is like a 90% chance that you have uh, ADHD because it sets up kind of the core components. And mm-hmm. the remaining questions are all, uh, additional markers to kind of like confirm and double down on that. So in the first place, that's a really, obviously that's relatively bite-sized in terms of a starting point. Yeah. But, and this is the bigger problem as is to your point is it's, you know, if you said go to someone and say, Oh, do you think you might have this quick kid? Take this quick medical test and find <laughs> out that is not, nobody is going to be answered positively to that. Yeah. And it's exactly that it, it's whether it's reframing that or whether it's coming back a step from that and being like, this is a thing, you know, have you ever felt, not to turn it into an advert, have you ever felt like, a, have you ever felt like this? <laughs> um, but certainly it's that kind of, you kind of need to get the, first you need to find the people, and, and but also you need to kind of draw them into it um, because, and, and this is one of the big problems with it, is that everybody thinks how they think is how everybody else thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you fundamentally have to accept that that might not be the case before you can even start this process. Right. And that's a difficult thing to break down depending on the different people. Certainly I spoke to somebody at Develop who's a bit older than me who said, oh, I think I might have um, a bunch of the symptoms and da 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 da. But uh, oh, I don't know if it, you know, what would be the, you know, what would be the benefit of doing it? What would be kind of be the point at, at this stage? Mm-hmm. And I think that's and even so even when people who even think they might have ADHD, you're still fighting an uphill battle of, of, of kind of what's the point. Um, which, you know, for me, and and I sort of talked to him about it, it's about understanding how you work in a way that means you can actually utilize that. Um, and I I won't go into the full details of that one. Um, but certainly one of the things that, that typifies it for me, and I don't know if this is true in in kind of the, the, uh, US game industry. And also I end up, if no one stops me, I just end up talking forever, but that's just (laughs) the, uh, the, the, uh, um, when I, (laughs) when, um, when you're young in the UK, in the UK kind of education system, you are taught about the three different types of learning. You know, you've got mm-hmm. visual learners, you've got uh, was it uh, audio learners and kinesthetic learners. You know, you learn by seeing, learn by hearing, learn by doing. Um, and here, you kind of have like a lesson or two lessons on that. And you know, right. wow, this it fundamentally defines how you learn as a person. And then it's mm-hmm. never mentioned again. And mm-hmm. like that doesn't. It's not like you've learned like oh, you learn by listening. Let's change your educational program to make sure that you always have some kind of listening resource. Cause that's how you work best. They kind of tell you and then they go, well, that's a good fact to know about yourself. Now back to writing in a textbook and you kind of <laughs> go, Oh, what happened? And that's the thing with, with for me with, with ADHD and autism and you know, the whole kind of gambit, including of, of neurodiversity as well, that it fundamentally underpins how you perceive the world, but it, you don't even get as far as being told that it kind of exists. You just kind of learn about it by accident one day when it's like, Oh, that guy's got ADHD and that's it. That's all you know. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so I have forgotten what the original question was, which is it's standard. <laughs> um, oh yeah. The user experience, the user experience of it all. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's breaking down a, a, a long form barrier to kind of create this starting point. Um, and I think maybe it's finding a way to resonate with people. I think that seems to work the best when somebody can see something in a story that connects with them in a way they didn't expect. Suddenly that opens people's minds. Yeah. So I, okay, so just to kind of summarize what we've heard so far, um, 
First of all, it doesn't surprise me. This is a complete tangent, but I think we can get back on track quickly. The learning styles thing is so interesting because it actually isn't very much of a thing. <laughs> it's oh. not supported by the learning styles isn't supported by evidence per se. Mm -hmm. Um that like someone's completely auditory or completely visual, yeah. completely kinesthetic. A lot of it depends mm -hmm. on what you're trying to learn. But the spirit of what you were saying in that they're like, okay, there are different ways to learn and we're never going to talk about it again. And also we're going to continue to teach everybody in the same way. That's the core of the problem, right? Like even if you learn a lot about yourself and how you best learn um, and what you need to do to get your brain in the best learning condition, um, you're not able to practice that because the education system that you're engaged with is one size fits all. Right. Yeah. And that's a problem yep. here in the United States too. Um, but it's also a problem in the working world, right? So that I think brings mm -hmm. us to the the issues that you're seeing and what we're kind of circling around. So, you know, if you if you have ADHD, my husband has has ADHD, so we talk about this quite a bit. Um, and it's not the same for everybody, but like your your brain will work differently than everyone else's brain, and that's true for every single individual. But like there is a certain degree of, well, neurotypical like expectation. And so if I as a neurotypical person I'm going about my workday in a certain way, and generally it's successful for me. I'm going to just innately have the assumption that it's going to be the same for everyone else. Right. And so when mm -hmm. I say, yeah, I think it'll take me like, I need a couple hours to just focus on this and then I'll come back to it. And what that means for everyone is you might be able to interrupt me with some tell, like some direct messages, but like I'm not going to jump into a meeting. Mm -hmm. For someone else, it might mean I am not going to be available for these hours and you cannot talk to me because it will destroy my concentration. Yeah. Just yep. just random examples. Um, so if you don't know that about yourself, then it's easy to just feel like you're bad and broken rather than just different, like wired in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard. I think it becomes harder for people to advocate for their own needs if those needs, if, if differences in needs aren't validated. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it totally makes right, sense. Right. Just to add on to that point, and this is one of this is this is actually the thing I was saying to the guy down at Develop, um, which was exactly that, which is. Uh, one of the most fascinating ones I've been I've been reading about is routines, um, mm -hmm. and that ADHD people do not have you can't have routines. It doesn't work, but they think they do, especially when they haven't been diagnosed. They don't recognize it. Um, and the way this this comes up was, for example, the one that I read was um, to, when you go to brush your teeth. Um, for me, and this is with a great deal of knowledge and learning about it, it is every single day. It is an active decision. I have mm -hmm. to decide to brush my teeth that I normally hook you into like getting changed or something like that. Um, but for example, the days when I've already gotten changed for whatever reason, the odds of me remembering to brush my teeth go out the window um, because I don't automatically remember it doesn't build it. It is a decision made. Like I am now going to go and brush my teeth. Um, and that for neurotypicals, that's not the case. Or, or so I'm told um, that they just kind of do it. They have already brushed their teeth. It just kind of rolled into it. And that goes up to every level. And the big one is is like committing to a sports, uh, an exercise regime. Mm -hmm. And that if you are, you know, the world is full of do it, commit harder, get motivated, <laughs> get a planner, just write it down. You'll do it. Do it for two weeks and then you're done and you're solid. And it just doesn't. That's not how it works for ADHD people at all. Mm -hmm. um, I've I for, like I did a uh, this is go back a few years ago. I did a 10K run. And 10 weeks beforehand, I was like, I can't run more than a, a kilometer. I'm going to look silly. Um, and that was enough motivation for me to run like almost every other day for 10 weeks. 
and get to the 10K and run it and do it in a perfectly reasonable time. And then it immediately dropped off. But like mm-hmm. that should have been enough to set a routine in place right. because it's 10 weeks of consistent yeah. running on a consistent time and schedule and it all collapsed. And I said to the person I was talking to, if you didn't know that you had ADHD and you tried to commit to a work regime and you did two weeks, three weeks, and then it all faded off, you could so easily blame yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're being told by people, oh, you're not working hard enough, just do it harder. You can do it. Like, mm-hmm. You just absolutely commit, you know. It's all on you, the determination. It's got to come from you. Mm. If you believe that and you believe that you should be able to do that, you could so easily fall into a spiral of um, blaming yourself, of self-doubt, of poor self-esteem. Because if you can't go, I I have ADHD. This is not how I'm meant to work. I need to come up with a different way to do this that works for me. Then you can end up in a really really sad place, essentially. And that's a big part of the danger for me. That's so it's so funny that you mentioned that because something just clicked for me. I've had so many conversations with Eric over the years about like the difference between his brain and my brain. And something just clicked for me that we've talked about ad nauseum. And that's about workout routines. He's a very, like very dedicated athlete and he's doing triathlons this summer and he's like really working towards the thing. But his his entire approach to fitness is goal oriented, right? So he like picks a race. He's going to do that race. And then he works towards that goal. And then when that race happens afterwards, it's like a whole disaster, right? He, he, he feels like he's actually got like post-race depression and he's oh. working through how to handle that too, because it's like there was this huge high and all this dopamine associated with every time he made progress towards making that big goal. And then it's gone. The whole thing's gone. And for me, he, he always says like, well, you know, you should like pick a race and you should work towards that race. And I'm like, it's not that doesn't work i have to structure my day in a way that's consistently going to work from day to day like otherwise it doesn't you know it race or no race it won't matter like it needs to be like a day-to-day thing um and that's i wonder if that's really the core of that that difference So we ask people to do various bits and bobs yes. in these middle sections of the show. And thank you, dear listener, if you're not skipping through this one. Appreciate it. Um, but one thing we haven't asked recently is to uh, load up uh, ye old Apple Podcasts and give us a review. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one, uh, kind of boring for us to ask for that. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's kind of like you've heard that in every podcast. Mm. It's kind of, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we're not that we're not that serious about it. Yeah. It's time to get serious. Yes. <laughs> do it. Let's go. Because it's, really uh, it's, it's useful for people to find the show, but um, also it's a great way to leave some public feedback on the show. Mm-hmm. So if you say something like, hey, more of this, less of this, like it's harder for us to ignore that. Yes. Because it's out there, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> Other people are speaking to, you know, to your personal motivation is why you might want to <laughs> give us the five stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I guess the other reason is like it's a little weird like promoting Apple Podcasts, but like that's the place you leave reviews. Yeah, you can also leave reviews on a couple of other different services, and if that's the one you use, please do. But the place people go is Apple Podcasts, and I'm loath to admit it, but that's where you should go, <laughs> almost exclusively, to leave your review of the show. Yeah, please do. Yeah, Stephen, you agree? Yes, I do. Ellen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we have quorum here. Uh, that's it. That's the end of the thing then. Yes. All right. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, 
Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Well, it's, it's interesting you talk about in those terms, because I think um, like that about routines and about the, and, and actually Adam, as you described, like the actual difference, like the brushing your teeth example, I think that's some like laying it out in those terms, I think will help people on board to the process of self-discovery. And, and so phrase, you know, having your resources framed in that way, mm-hmm. not less so much like a clinical diagnosis as, as more like a, um, I mean, it, a little bit like a quiz, like, you know, how do you approach this topic? Because these are things that, mm-hmm. as you say, you don't think you're different. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, people don't compare notes on a lot of this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the other half of that, and I know this is something that I think I suffer from, is I I assume that I'm different from everybody else. Like, I, I feel that, mm-hmm. but I don't feel that that's different from other people. Like, I feel that they're also different from everybody mm-hmm. else. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so it never mm-hmm. occurs mm-hmm. to me that what is different about me is worth exploring in any you know, yeah, in any sense, mm-hmm. and so I I, f- I feel like a lot of people must feel that way. They, it's not always that. Yes, I f- what I, I, my experience must be normal. It's that my experience must be as abnormal as everybody else. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, like having it a way to actually just drill down and actually just get ex- like concrete examples, um, and that's difficult because not everyone's going to uh, respond to each one of those concrete examples. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and as people have said, uh, everybody experiences things differently. So like if you have ADHD, you'll still experience it differently from someone else. And so like, like you were saying earlier in the show, you were sending memes back and forth with your friend. Not everybody is going <laughs> to relate to those memes in the same yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so it might not, it, it, it might not feel like, and in, in fact, I think a lot of times people will see some of those memes and go, well, I don't really experience this. So I must not have ADHD, even though you experience like 50 percent of the other ones or something like that. Um, so I think that like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that I think that that test thing seemed really seems really valuable to just be mm. able to like, take this test and see maybe you have it, maybe you don't. And then this can right. help you do that. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I guess the framing of it would be. Important. I mean, you also have to think about. Um, like the um, um, like the Scientology personality quiz, right? Oh, mm-hmm. which is like you know hokum, mm-hmm. um, and has a has a goal at the end to recruit you into this way of thinking. Yeah, and so you also mm-hmm. have to kind of avoid that, especially as an advocacy advocacy group. Yeah, you don't want to be caught in the trap of like, um, let's try to get more people to identify as this, which I imagine would never be your outward goal, but you could kind of work towards that because you know how many people are undercounted. Yeah. And so it could be very easy to start having questioning your own motivations. And that's why I brought up like medical advisors. Yeah. Is yeah. like making mm-hmm. sure that there's a because I think that mental health in particular, I think, is is a difficult subject because a lot of people they feel unheard. Yes. And so they christen themselves the new experts. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's 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 a that's a big danger. Yeah. Um yeah. because everyone is trying to do the right thing. Right. And there's a lack and, the, and then there's like building trust, you know, in in expertise, but also the fact knowing that there's lots of holes in that expertise that like, you know, mm-hmm. the experts aren't always right about these things. It's a very complicated subject. And I think it's it, when you say like a, a, like a simple uh, quiz is useful, but it also that's also the starting point to a bad road. Sure. And I, yeah. I don't have a lot of advice on how to avoid the bad road yeah. because I also agree having a simple endpoint seems vital to me right. to yeah. have that. 
Um, but it all, uh, but just in my head, like, like uh, it's also kind of dangerous. Well, okay, so like maybe the first steps could be just finding resources on on medical advisors who can help you help you understand better how your brain works, and you and then they can help you determine whether or not you feel like it's worth it to go and take a test, um, like a, a detailed test, not a 12 quiz test or 12 question test, mm-hmm. um, uh, to see if you, if, if an ADHD diagnosis makes sense for you or not. Um, mm-hmm. I think so that's, that's a good way to start about it because then you're, you know, you're, you're following science and you're asking uh, experts to help you determine these things mm-hmm. instead of, um, you just making your decisions on your own. I feel, yeah, like self diagnosis can be, um, scary <laughs> yeah it's like how you know if you feel sick if you feel like your nose is runny and then you go on google and it tells you you're dying <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah it's that kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. also um like a self-diagnosis yeah is it can be uh motivated yes right yeah but also because you know neurodiversity is a spectrum mm-hmm. um it's it's also kind of okay a, l- a little bit. Like I, yeah, I guess I'm trying to have, I'm true. trying to say it both ways in, in a sense that like if someone, you know, feels that, that they, that they've self-diagnosed themselves mm-hmm. and maybe a medical expert would disagree. Mm-hmm. There's a problem with that, but also there, it's not exactly the problem you think it is. Yes. It's not, it's not the same mm-hmm. as diagnosing yourself with, oh, yeah, with, with, a, yeah. with a blood disorder that's, because you read at WebMD. Mm-hmm, I'm glad mm-hmm. you clarified. Um, that's you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, if it, if it's, if you don't reach sort of a clinical level, yeah. well, then these resources can still be useful to you. Yes. I mean, there's a sense of like the self discovery aspect is very important. I think it's important mm-hmm. we all are able to be honest with ourselves mm-hmm. and have information we have. Right. But I don't mean to overstate the danger of self diagnosis. Yes. So, mm-hmm. I want to jump off of that for a second because I'm I'm thinking of this in terms of like who who are the people that we're you know trying to serve, yeah. And we have a, a large group of potential users who are you know non neurotypical mm-hmm. game devs, yeah. Um, and then within that, we're talking about ADHD, um, which I think is a great great place to start because it, it's a nice you know something we have experience with because of our guest. Um, but then within that, within that population, we have another subset, right? We have people who have an existing diagnosis and they know about it. And then we have the mm-hmm. second half, which is people who don't know that they, yeah, that they right, have it, right? right? And I'm curious about what drives that second group, people who do not have a diagnosis, what, what conditions are driving them to ask the question, do I have ADHD? So on that, I'm actually going to split it, split that one further um because and this may this may be a uk specific problem then as opposed to a very problem but the when your your local doctor says oh you you know you took the very the shorter test you might have it there is a process before you can then be formally diagnosed because you need to be interviewed by a specialist and where i live and in most of the uk that timeline can be two years um so (laughs) you could be and that's if they pass you on. And somebody that I met at the lunch, um, they had been told by separate university doctors that they almost certainly had ADHD. But when they went to their doctor, they were basically told because it wasn't actively disrupting their life in a very demonstrable way, i.e., they weren't going to prison. It hadn't caused them, you know, hadn't caused them to go to jail or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did complete their degree in six years instead of four. Um, that they were not going to be considered for diagnosis because they what? decided because probably probably because they had to apply for funding to do so, and they were like, uh, "Well, it's not actually disrupting your life that much." And for me, 
that's one of the big things is that there are exactly like that group. There are people out there who are self-diagnosed and want to be diagnosed, but can potentially suffer from imposter syndrome without that formal diagnosis right, that right. Pre- makes prevents them from accessing that information. And that, that's, that's sort of like the good typifying in, in how you're in the UK of that second group. And that third group, which is the most interesting of all to kind of consider, are those who could be perceived as having ADHD, whether through their behavior, whether it's, you know, they, they, because it's, there's a huge genetic component if their family has it. Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, there's a phenomenon of, um, I don't know if you know the expression, birds of a feather flock together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a phenomenon of, of neurodiverse people who don't even know they're neurodiverse end up in big groups of friends because they all think alike and are more comfortable in each other's presence. Yeah. Um, like I was saying, it was one of my friends who did it. And in that group of us, at least six, seven, eight people now uh, have either since been formally diagnosed or in the process of having ADHD um, because we all get on and we all can, you know, we all click with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are people who, you know, could have ADHD and either don't know about it or actively like, oh, you know, it's not, that's not me. Um, and that's also a really interesting group because they, it's kind of, it, it's kind of like they just, they, it's such a difficult one because obviously there's so many, there are a lot of benefits to knowing, but obviously they, you would have to break down kind of why do they want to not know almost because, and this then goes back to kind of like, you know, if you believe it is, if you believe it is a disorder as opposed to being sort of a neurotype and just how some people are, then Mm -hmm. that's a bigger problem. I also think, and this is based on what Steven said, I think the first page just needs to be memes just straight up. (laughs) If you connect with these, if you connect with these memes, Please read on. That is yeah. gotta be that's the, the extra that informal be step test. one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I think that a lot of the points that you you stated and then we've stated are important. But I think that when people are thinking about how they've been handling things, especially older people, um, mm. you you know you've learned kind of how your own brain works in a way where it feels like the diagnosis might not be useful. Like you've kind of just established. Well, I have a hard time uh creating a morning routine right so i just won't establish a morning routine um i don't necessarily need an adhd diagnosis to to determine that i don't like morning routines um so it might be like that kind of thing like they've already kind of established um or they've already understood how their brain works and they feel like a diagnosis won't really help them improve Mm. upon that aspect well they Mm -hmm. built a whole universe of coping mechanisms yes and Mm -hmm. whether it's as successful as it could be or not but uh, going down that path means abandoning all of the things that that they've done so far. Yeah, which, that's what it feels which can like. feel a little bit like you know that that can be a, yeah could be an identity crisis. Well, yeah, even if those coping yeah, yeah. mechanisms stay in place, it feels like they could be. Yeah, you know, it's unfamiliar territory. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. It's it's almost kind of admitting you're wrong a little bit. Yeah, in, in a way, um, which can be massively difficult to face. Yeah. Right, it's true. And there's a huge, you know, especially in, in across all kind of neurodiversity. I've spoken to people about this. I, I, I was fortunate that I kind of, um, it, it didn't play a huge factor into my kind of process. But a lot of people, when they go through the process, end up feeling grief mm. um, for, you know, especially for those who have had difficult lives of who they could have been had they been told earlier. You yeah. know, the problems that they faced had they been aware of at an earlier stage, they would have been able to do something about it or they would have had the accommodations necessary to support that. Um, and my one, to exactly your point, up until pre-pandemic, I would never have considered 
going and getting a diagnosis. It was not even close to on my mind, even though I definitely had it. And I definitely, it was definitely a huge part of an impact in my life in a way that I didn't understand. And only by having it sort of shoved in my face by all my coping mechanisms being basically trashed because mm. pandemic. Yeah. Um, wasn't that a fun time? Um, <laughs> I say, I say, wasn't wasn't that? Isn't that a fun time? Yeah, as yeah. It it's great. Um, yeah. Isn't it currently? Um, <laughs> but the, you know, not everyone's going to have that. Not everyone's going to have that kind of that moment of where it, they are confronted with it. And exactly, exactly that. It's it's hard. It's it's exactly it's hard to accept that you're that either that you're wrong or that what you believe may not be true. And that is a tough position for someone to take. Yeah, yeah. What we're really circling around is how your initiative. Like how, how it says hello to people, mm, right? Mm. And, and, and what audiences it focused on. And I don't think we've answered the question, yeah. but that's okay. Um, but I think it's important to have drilled it, like really gotten it deep into these issues because it really does matter when you present yourself as this organization that's committed to this topic, this issue, advocating for this audience, um, identifying who that audience is, who it could be, who you focus on. And going back to, I think, what Ellen, you were saying earlier about like where you start you kind of are, you do have to kind of focus, I think, but like we're mm. going to focus on this corner of the issue yeah. with the goal of focusing on the rest of it because it can be really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I think we've laid it out pretty clearly, yep. like how big a topic it is just in terms of like who walks through the door yeah. <laughs> and what that, you know, how do you approach each individual person, which, you know, uniquely is a, a more challenging uh, uh, with this kind of initiative than other types. Um, and so I think the, the thing that, um, that I, I've learned in when I was working in a non nonprofit in college mm -hmm. was this concept of strategic planning, okay. which is a sort of a formal process where you sort of decide this is what our, our organization's goal is. This is what our immediate long term, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, what our attempts to reach that goal will be. Mm -hmm. These are, our, you know, our short term and long term goals. And it's, yeah. it is, it's pretty, it's very formalized in a way. And it lets you kind of decide what you're doing this moment. Um, mm -hmm. rather than uh, measuring every action you take against the biggest goal you've got. Ah, um, yeah. And I think that would be a good strategy for you, but it also depends, and this is the question I'm going to ask you, on the makeup of an organization. Are you, I don't know the, the legal status for nonprofits and charities in the UK. I assume there's some analog to how it works in the US, but mm -hmm. do, you, are you, do you intend to establish yourself as a formal nonprofit, as a charity? Do you have, want a board of directors? Do you want, you know, how, what's the, What's the format for the, the the initiative? So for certainly in the first stages and for a while, I would probably not formalize it just because you don't have to be you don't have to formalize to exist kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And the moment that you do the moment that you do formalize, you you come subject to certain restrictions. Right. There are certain time you you kick off certain timers that are like, oh, if you've been a registered organization for two years, you no longer get this funding. Goodbye. Um, which if we're not prepared for, then we wouldn't want to miss out on opportunities and such. Yeah. Um, so I think in the first case, it would be trying to uh, establish that kind of space while existing. You know, what does the space look like? I think right. the key thing for me, certainly from an organizational perspective, would be having as much in terms of that representation of subgroups as possible, because mm -hmm. as we sort of alluded to, ADHD is not just ADHD and you're done. You know, there's also... ADHD and other things. There's also, you could be a man or a woman, or you could be non-binary, or you could be um, of different races. And all that plus ADHD has a dramatically different effect 
um, and me just coming into it being like, this is what ADHD is for everyone. Here you go is not correct. Like I, I will paint a picture, but it will be my picture and it will resonate with some people, but it won't resonate with others. Um, and it would be, it would be wrong of me to kind of go into it about that. So I definitely want some kind of board to, un- who can reflect as much of that kind of varied opinion as possible. Right. Um, after that, it's a, di- it's a difficult one. It kind of structurally is not something I've kind of dived into in, in my own mind. Um, because I just kind of attack things from the front and I wonder why I do that. But it's certainly, again, another kind of good point in kind of, you know, how you, especially with that kind of strategic planning, because again, ADHD people are, are known for not being particularly good at, at goal setting, despite the fact, like, just as your husband kind of pointed out, we kind of need goals to strive for to help us kind of be motivated to, to hit them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of that strategic planning, how does it define... How does it suggest you define goals? Is it quantitative? Is it smart targets? Is it more kind of uh, aesthetic? What, what is the, how does it kind of de- suggest going for those goals? You essentially have your mission statement, right? So this is what the, the, the organization is. So it's actually not that different from like a game design document yeah. in mm-hmm. the sense that you have this thing that like your actions are uh, measured against. But you also yeah. have essentially like a five-year plan. And so, and it is different for different organizations. Like, you know, for some that, you know, that are longstanding, it can be a fundraising goal or it can be a, we want to have a presence in these media markets or, or whatever it is. I mean, it, it mm. really is very independent, but it's, it is specific to those, uh, to those organizations. So I don't have a great answer for you. It's essentially something that you and the people you want to work with will have to kind of come up with. But then the key part of it is that you stick to that plan. Because, yes. uh, like, and and like a game design document, uh, facts on the ground can change, right. and then you need to revisit. Yeah. And so, um, I believe there are mechanisms for that revisiting. But the idea is uh, the way nonprofits generally do this, or, or tend to do this, is they do like a kind of a retreat where everyone takes the day, you know, takes a couple of days, and they don't do any of the normal work, and everybody works on this, mm. and then the the work is done, and then that gets put on the shelf. And then as you do your regular work, you, you, you check back on that to make sure you're keeping in line with those plans okay. um, rather mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. sort of planning as you go, essentially. Right. And I think part of that is due to – this is a supposition on my part, but I believe part of that is due to the extreme resource constraints mm-hmm. that nonprofits tend to have. You can yeah, – I mean, yeah, this kind of strategic planning process can be done by you know, corporations as well. Sure. Um, but the, the, and and, and I'm, I'm not super – familiar exactly but my understanding is it's more much more common in the nonprofit world because you don't have everybody's time or or energy that you can focus the mm. way you can a, a group of employees and so it can mm-hmm, be very mm-hmm. helpful to everyone gets together for the first time in a couple of weeks well we all remember what page we're on yeah and it's the same page mm. and that's a that's a mechanism by which you can do that but it's essentially like you take a couple of days and you do a kind of a camp where everybody kind of hammers it all out together. Um, there, and I'll, we'll put some resources in the show notes because I couldn't, off the top of my dome, I couldn't help you with, with the specifics um, on how to set that up or, or establish that as a plan. And you can adapt mm-hmm. it to the size of your organization and, and how it works. But I think what I'm hearing, and I think what I want to get to next is it, what I'm hearing from you is um, in terms of like how you want to formally structure the organization, it's, it seems like it's important for you to first establish a presence and do some good before you mm. get into all of the minutiae and legalese and all of that. And I think that that's a pretty good way to start because then when it's time to make those decisions about how many subcommittees does do we have, <laughs> you know, um, you'll have a sense at what your capabilities as an organization are. It'll be less yeah. aspirational. You'll have, you'll have some things under your belt. And, and frustratingly so, it's kind of 
okay for it to be a little messy before then because you sort of mm-hmm. need to find yourself as an organization. So I wouldn't be scared of not having all those plans right away. But like mm-hmm. a like a like a five year plan, it might be useful for you to have a you know a a a, a timeline that you set up for yourself. That once I once we hit this threshold, we need to take stock, you know, and see if it's time to move to the next step. If it, it did, we yeah. meet the goal we wanted to meet. If not, should we start over? Should we change tack? Um, kind of uh, 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 schedule out some decision points, it, it, you know, within the next how you know that could be months, that could be years. Um, mm. So that again, when you're thinking about what I'm going to do for this next conference uh, for our presence there, what I'm going to do for this meetup we're going to plan this month, you're thinking about that and not thinking about the bigger goal that it's going to do because you've already thought about that and you've put that yeah. on a piece of paper somewhere. Um, so yeah. that you can adapt that kind of thing to the, to a more informal setting. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, it seems like the first question then is. How do you recruit people to help you run the thing? How do you get that diverse board or diverse group of people who put it together, whether it's officially called the board or not? Mm. So I, uh, in the first instance, I reached out to uh, a friend of mine that I've had for about six years, who's who I've made through the games industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's at a relatively senior position, but has also been diagnosed for a long time. And somebody else who went through the process similar in a similar time frame to me, um, but then at uh, Develop, develop conference gave the first while i ran the first kind of event for people she gave the first talk specifically about adhd mm-hmm. um so i was like that that you clearly care about you know advocacy again somebody somebody i knew i, I knew for sure beforehand but kind of going you clearly care about advocacy to start this um and also because for me um i definitely wanted to from the very beginning is to highlight the kind of the the female and kind of um all perspectives on how it manifests because the re- the research it's hard to say the research is wrong when there's a lot of smart people have done a lot of information but they they kind of say the, the generally accepted ratio is three to one on it turning up in men to women mm-hmm. and i'm not 100 percent sure that's actually correct because right right when when i the big thing they say is that it's a lot is that and this is true in all neurodiversity and and, and autism and all these kind of things is that uh women learn from a much younger age about the importance of like social norms this kind of thing and i'm much better at masking and pretending it's not real um and that hides it from a lot of doctors and stuff who don't know the absolute detail of what they're looking for and how and what it looks like when people are masking as well um but so i found them because they're people that i knew but after that um i haven't thought too much about how specifically to reach out i'd be apart from when i was at this um the the lunch that I ran, I had <laughs> I I had a, a plan beforehand that I would have already kind of announced that it existed and, and that kind of thing. And then it was the day before and I was like, I was meant to launch this. Uh that was a mistake. Oh. Um, I I launched I launched a lunch. I hadn't launched the organization. But when I was there, what I did was was very hastily in the morning set up a, a sign up page just so I could capture the information of the people who were there mm-hmm. and said, look, if you're interested in it, the people who turned up, because obviously these are people who are of the games industry because we're at develop they are people who care because they turned up they are mm-hmm. people who are uh you know, organized enough to, to to be present and want to connect with this group and all these kind of things um that i thought they would be a good starting point as a a whether it would be end up being a test bed or people to speak to or people who would be interested in being active i thought that'd be a good starting point so i had a sign up form to, to do that and certainly while i was there a number of them came up to me and said 
I really like the sound of what you're doing. If you need any help, if you need any assistance, you know, I, I can help you out with this, that, and the other, and da, 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 da. So I think that's, that's kicked off the process in a good way. Um, but there's definitely a question on, because you just don't, you don't want to be a position where you, everyone who says, oh, I can help, you go, yes, great. And then you have 30 people and you're like, hang on a minute, we can't organize this now. Yeah, um, right, right. So trying to figure out exactly who and where and why is probably is a really important one to think about for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, and a lot of the questions you want you, you you'll need to answer may just mm. come from the sort of early brainstorming of the of the people who show up, right? Yes. Um, and For it's sure. sort of a, an organic way to get that process going. Um, but you know, um, and this is not unique to neurodiverse folks, but making sure that there's an avenue for people to participate, so that when they have the yeah. energy to give, there's somewhere to put it. Yes. So whether that's like a Discord server or whether that's monthly meetups, uh, something that that makes it uh, less of a of a job to to keep up with. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That first point of contact, I think, is definitely a key, and and making it clear and obvious, and like, look, if you if you, and this kind of goes back to that that key again of that, you know, how do you say hello? Um, which I think is a good summary of it. It's like you know, when people, you you can't know how people are going to interact with your group in the first instance you don't know where they're going to find you you don't know you know you can hope that if you blast out enough spaces that they can Mm -hmm. but you don't know where it's going to be so if you can create an easy way for people to connect with you in the absolute first instance whether it's you know they go oh let me just go to the um the the website or the the twitter handle or whatever and it just says there like want to reach out click here you want to tell us something click it here's the link Mm -hmm. this is the thing go here and it has everything I think that's really. I think that's that's really key, um, yeah. and I think that that in particular is a thing that that I hadn't really thought about to that extent. Which again, like you know, it goes back to to, to video games. It's exactly that. It's you know, the, especially because at the mobile market, the first ten seconds will define if somebody plays your game or not. Like right. they'll just right. shut it down and walk away. Um, so if the first if the first interaction with this group is trying to remember a, a username and then going to Twitter and like, okay, this is them, but is there a link here? Do I have to go through a bunch of tweets? Especially with people who don't have, aren't famous for having the greatest attention span of all time. Um, that probably quite a lot would bounce off. Um, and that would obviously defeat the point. So I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's thinking about that dynamic, that, that process of, of catch people, not only when they're, when they're ready to give information, but also making it as easy and straightforward as possible for them to do so. Yeah, vitally important. Yeah, a very curated pathway to you have the yeah. you have a need and here's information. Yeah. and even just yeah. streaming like streamlining that a bit will help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to close the episode on the um, the role of allies mm. because I think mm. it's it's it for for lots of organizations that's representing uh, diverse groups that is extremely important but yeah I, I would love to hear your take on what what do you what do you expect from the neurotypical if that makes sense like w- w- I mean because because <laughs> the, the prototypical it, well it can be very important to organizations to be run by the people affected by by a particular issue yeah. or part of a particular demographic but at the same time it do you do you demand that of the people who participate um because uh you you know, you may, this may be a future problem, but you may have lots of energy from people who want to contribute who are not necessarily affected by the issue. And, and mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you give those people the ability to, uh, to help, but also not 
put them in a place where they uh, are, you know, in charge when they can't understand. You know, this it can be kind of tricky, right? Yeah. Um, because I think it's um, one thing I, I imagine is a a a, a problem. Is you know you're you don't feel that you're affected by this issue you don't you've never had that inkling and you know and so it doesn't matter to you mm. and I think that can be tricky because that that leaves a lot of energy on the table but at the same time you don't want to waste your energy reaching out to those people right. if you if you can't also help them um, I'm sort of babbling but I'm kind of asking you to do the same babbling like have you thought about no. that and and what do you expect the role of of sort of the the, the broader community of game you, you don't to have be. To- you don't need to ask me to babble. Don't worry, I'll do that <laughs> all on my own. I'm fine with that. It's all, that's what I'm built for. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because there's again in that group, it's it's super interesting because we'll have because in that group of, of of the neurotypical and stuff, we'll also be the neurodiverse who don't know it. The people yeah. who you know they until until they recognize that actually it might be a thing, they will also be they will put themselves outside of that circle. Um, and so you have to, you know, and even if they go like, oh, you know, because you've had it before where people go like, oh, but everyone thinks like that. And you're like, yeah, but they don't. And that's and that's an uphill struggle. I think it really is. And it goes back to the, the point right back at the beginning of first, you, you have to be open to first, you have to be open to the fact that people think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and but not only be open to it, but fundamentally, fundamentally accept that and be appreciative of it, because just thinking, yeah, you know, people think differently. Fine. But then if you, you know, demand things of people without taking into account, well, how is that going to affect that person? It's similar to you were saying before about the the uh, the phone call during the day, because um, there was a great uh, thread on it a little while ago um, where somebody was saying, if you if you ask me, if you if you message me for a meeting like you've uh, already messed up my day. And someone was like, what, well, just just by asking? And it was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That the, this gone like whatever attention I had, I had to look at your message, and I've gone back, and this is all squiggles now. The, the whole yeah. thing has yeah. just kind of left the building, um, and it's and that's not you know that's not in any way saying therefore never ask me ever for a meeting. It's mm-hmm. that it's being mindful of the impact that you are having um, before you have it, and being appreciative of that moment because it's still fine for someone to ask ask you for a meeting, but if they know that it's going to mess up your focus, then they take that into account when doing so. They go, actually, can I email, can I book a meeting or can I email you about it? And you'll get to that email when you do. If I, can I send you a WhatsApp message that you'll read when you get to it? Can I message you? Can I, can I delay a message on Slack or on Discord to be sent in two hours or tomorrow morning or whatever it might be? Is there a way that I could do this that is going to be more appreciative of the position that you're in? Mm-hmm. And obviously that takes a huge amount of education. It takes a huge amount of learning. And certainly when it comes to, you know, people trying to help, I think the absolute basis is just being appreciative and understanding. And especially at a stage where the education isn't great, the people who are going to know the best are, are people who have ADHD, self-diagnosed or, or, or formally diagnosed and have learned about it. Yeah. And those that when they come to you and say, I know that you, you've done it like this, but if you do it like this, it could cause this or have this effect to be appreciative of that knowledge and to go to not go like oh well that's not how people work or oh that's mm-hmm. not you know well i've done it like this my whole life and it's been fine if they're coming to you and saying it then that's because it's something that's impacting their lives and it's mm-hmm. about taking that on board and building it into you as opposed to being defensive or being basically not being sure that that's actually correct and just being like oh, is that yeah. actually what it is um 
and I think that's the absolute first step is just kind of going if you're if this if this is what it is I accept that my I don't think like this um and that's okay and and to give an example of where this plays into it still um so uh uh my wife my wife is autistic for example um and we sometimes um, we clash every now and then on things you know as everybody does but sometimes it will drill down to just that I don't think the same way that she does Mm-hmm. Like that's the fundamental bottom line of it. And I have, you know, I can't figure my way into that. I can't, you know, change how I fundamentally think. I have to kind of be like, okay, that's, that's how you think. I can, un- I understand what you're telling me and I can understand how that could play into things. It's not how I think, but I understand that. And that is a, a level of trust that you would have to have in the person opposite you. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when it gets down to a certain level, and this is true for all things, you know, lived experience, um, people who have experienced, been in certain situations, People react to things based on how they perceive the world. And if you can get to a point where you can go, I trust you are telling me the truth here and that this is how you do it and I will act accordingly, then that's kind of the, that's the most important fundamental thing that to kind of to kind of roll with, to be able to, to work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um, you you certainly want the assistance and support of the neurotypical, but also it seems like what you're hoping to do is provide that education, not just to people who you expect to join and participate, but also to the broader community. And, and that yeah. it, it, it's a sort of a dual purpose, right? Because it's like, yeah, you can make lives better for for some, but you you can't do that yourself. You actually do need the, the support of everybody else. Um, yeah. And so that's sort of another another category in the resources page, really, is, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. For, you know, for the neurotypical. That's it. I guess it just it really illustrates how big the issue is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, the most recent stats have said something like 5% of humanity might have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that is not a small number. Um, and it's not, and it's not, like you said, it's not a number that can exist by itself. You know, we want to work together. And so it, it's not about educating one half or the other. It's about everybody learning more about it and working together and, and having a better time because of it. I, I, I hope we helped uh, focus your thoughts a little yeah. bit on because oh, I think because no, what, no, what I've learned is that this is a, a larger problem than I thought <laughs> like to, like or larger task rather yeah. Uh, yeah, ahead of a, you. There's a lot to do. Um, but I think you know. Um, but yeah, I, I hope I hope we've we've drilled a couple of these issues, and I, I I do hope that you find a way to 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 grow the 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 initiative, whether it becomes you know a, a, a nonprofit eventually or whatever the scale it 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 is it. it decides to be for itself um mm-hmm. i I'd, I'd love to see you get there step by step um and i hope you keep us updated on your progress oh i will absolutely and i think one of the key things here is that this is <laughs> I, I very often just kind of run headfirst into things don't worry um and just kind of do them and don't plan and don't think and don't set goals and targets or have a vision not properly anyway and then it'll get to somewhere down the line where i'm like why was I doing this again? What was the what was the point? And it's very easy to lose momentum at that point. So even yeah. in having this conversation where it's like, well, what are your goals going to be? What do you actually want to what do you want to do? Can you define it down? You know, what is going down to those finer details like, okay, yeah, this would all be great, but if, you know, if you don't know how if you're not set up to greet those people when they come to the website and so if you've not thought about that, then they could bounce off and you don't get the impact that you wanted. And those are the kind of things that I wouldn't have been I would have been running off, you know, setting up the TV advert long before I remember to set up the front page of the website. And that's, you know, that kind of 
take a step back and think it is, is vital. Um, so yeah. yeah, no, it's been super helpful and I appreciate it. That's our show. For show notes and links on today's topic, go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on Twitter at Nice Games Club, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and two types of merchants. I don't know what that's about. It's cats. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We like hearing from you, so tweet back or email us contact at nicegames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. And if you want to keep things more casual, you can stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. Next week, it's a special episode or not. We'll see. We don't know if we've done the numbers right, but that's it for this week. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.